You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Asha. Today we have Tim Sharak again. He was here last time to explain his article about counterintelligency and coin. And since recently Shinzo Abe has died, I thought we could learn a little bit about Japan since you spent a lot of time in Japan. <laughs> so let's start with right after the war. Japan surrendered to the U.S. Were there any terms and conditions to surrender? Well, it was an unconditional surrender. That's what the Truman administration insisted on. And, you know, Japan didn't surrender until the two atomic bombs were dropped. Before that, though, as you know, the the U.S. conducted one of the most incredible, you know, one of the most violent uh, attacks on the country ever in this uh, months-long bombing campaign that destroyed pretty much every major city. And, you know, by the summer of 1945, Japan was pretty much on its knees. And there was a lot of debate within the U.S. government about the terms of the surrender. But the, you know, the people at the top levels of the administration and the military wanted an unconditional surrender with no conditions attached. The ruling government in Japan really wanted, you know, some statement in there about maintaining the emperor, but that was not in the, any of the surrender terms. But the emperor was kept on and was not charged as a war criminal. And so the interesting thing about the uh, U.S. occupation of Japan is that a lot of people just think, you know, the U.S. ruled Japan directly through the U.S. occupation. But actually, the, the, the Japanese government was allowed to keep its government as it was, minus a few people that were considered war criminals by the U.S. and the Allied powers, which included the Soviet Union and nationalist China and England. But the U.S. had pretty much total control of the occupation. And in, uh, I'd say, you know, in, in the first two years of the occupation, which the occupation lasted from 1945 until 1952, and the first two years, there was real revolutionary changes in Japan. I mean, they women got the right to vote. Uh, labor unions were, you know, given free reign to organize. And, you know, one of the first acts of the occupation was to free uh, political prisoners, you know, who'd been in jail during the war. And most of those prisoners were communist members of the Communist Party, which was the only party that really fought against the imperial system. And so all these, you know, communists came out of the prisons and then war criminals were put in jail. And, you know, when the communists were let out and the unions and labor unions were allowed to organize, there was a massive increase in union membership. And there was a whole, you know, string of strikes. And, uh, you know, workers were really showing their power in the first couple of years. And, you know, the, the, the U.S. imposed, you know, through the government, this constitution, which included Article 9, that prohibited Japan from participating in overseas wars and having a standing military. Uh, and that's now at issue with, with, with Abe's uh, death and the recent electoral victory of the Liberal Democratic Party now seems to have the votes to uh, uh, alter this, old, uh, this peace constitution, the peace clause of the constitution. So the first two years, it seems there was a lot of progress and was there I, I guess was there any grassroots change to the constitution or was most of it kind of um put in through from above well that was imposed i mean it was the, the constitution was written by you know macarthur's staff people that he had on his staff and uh, you know a lot of the, a lot of the laws were written by the, the u.s occupation force uh, known as scap supreme commander Allied Command, Allied Pacific, and, and like you know, MacArthur had all kinds of people on his staff. From you know, you know, of course, a lot of you know people that had administered the New Deal and under the Roosevelt administration. You know, all these New Dealers were in Japan, and so you know they tried to 
impose laws that they thought would reform Japan and make it a much more democratic country, which then that part of it, you know, succeeded. Uh, so like while the Japanese government was in place, they were, they were told by the U.S. occupation, you have to pass these laws. And they did, for the most part, there was a lot of pushback by conservatives and they were able to argue against some of the, some of the laws. But it was, a, you know, it was a really dynamic you know, period of time but you know you have to remember that you know because of the bombing and because of the of the war i mean japan was just i mean it was uh people were starving by the end of the war and so the you know some of the initial months is just a matter of you know trying to keep people alive and to, and to bring in supplies so people could eat because there had been this you know japan had been completely cut off from uh, its sources of imports and exports and, and, you know, by the blockade and the war. So it was a time of recovery. And then, you know, after starting in uh, 1948, there was a, a lot of pushback from inside Japan, from conservative forces, business forces, but also major pushback against the democratic reforms of the occupation from American business from a mm. whole lobby group of Americans that were many of them had had business relationships with Japan prior to the war, hmm. uh, and and there was a there was a, a there was a lobby group that was you know called the Japan lobby the Japan crowd that was led by former diplomats in one in particular from 1931 to 1941 the u.s ambassador to japan was a guy named joseph grew who was a very wealthy man and and his cousin was jp morgan of the mm. morgan interests and the morgan interests had some of the largest investments in japan prior to the war including general electric was the biggest u.s investor in japan and GE was part of the Morgan, you know, empire, basically. But it was, you know, oil interests, the Rockefeller interests, which, uh, you know, had control over lots of the uh, standard oil and, and, you know, oil distribution in East Asia was also part of this. And so this Japan crowd, so-called, also included Newsweek magazine, mm. uh, which was which was owned by, you know, some very wealthy uh, Americans such as Avril Harriman, who was, you know, ambassador to the Soviet Union during the World War II, and the Harriman had all these interests in, in railroads. Uh, they owned a big chunk of Newsweek. So you had this kind of combination of, of diplomats who had been very, they, they had never, you know, like Joseph Grew, this diplomat who was ambassador until 1941, they had never uttered a word of criticism about Japan's invasion of China, uh, Japan's uh, colonization of Korea. They went along with all that. And, you know, the problem became when Japan attacked America in, in December 1941 and tried to put the U.S. fleet out of action. And um, so these were people who were very favorable to the business people who, you know, built Imperial Japan. And so their, their theory, uh, this was especially true of Joseph Grew, their theory was if you could only separate the militarists from the business mm -hmm. class, then, then, you know, Japan would be okay. And so they began to push back against these, these democratic reforms that had been pushed through. And so you had a Newsweek you know, led the sort of media campaign against the occupation reforms. And then you had, you know, business people putting pressure on the U.S. government to change and, and all that, you know, and, and with, with the increase in tensions with the Soviet Union and the coming of the Cold War, you know, the U.S. government, you know, really made a decision to end the democratic reforms and, Instead of punishing Japanese war criminals, instead of trying to weaken its economy, weaken its war economy, and dissolve the zaibatsu, the large you know, conglomerates that had financed and also profited from the war, instead of trying to dissolve those, they went back to you know, putting those companies together 
making Japan into an ally of the U.S. in the Cold War against the Soviet Union and against the rise of communist movements in China and in Korea and the rest of Asia. And so 1948 was when it really started to change. And at the same time, there was a massive American military buildup in Japan. That's when they started building bases and clearing out people that the farmers in, in Okinawa and clearing out that land, kicking people out of Okinawa so they could turn that into a big military base. And they were building bases all over Japan. And at the same time, this was going on in Japan. Of course, the U.S. had an occupation of Southern Korea, which mm-hmm. was divided at the 38th parallel just at the end of World War II. In Korea, you know, there was no democratic reforms. Instead, Mm -hmm. the U.S., you know, put together a government that was basically an alliance between collaborators of the Japanese colonialists and large landowners and (laughs) conservative business people. And in Korea, there was a mass movement, you know, against the U.S. occupation of southern Korea which turned into a counterinsurgency war by 1948, 1949. So, you know, as the U.S. was transforming Japan into this Cold War ally, it was also making a war against the left in southern Korea. And that's where you have the roots of the Korean War right there. Uh, because the CIA, it was, it was a newly, I'm not sure if this was the OSS disclosure or if it was just the newly minted CIA disclosure for Singman Rhee, where they're basically saying he's extremely unpopular, incompetent, and may cause a big embarrassment. Like they, And this was their internal documents because of how... Well, well, Sigmund Rhee, Sigmund Rhee was you know, brought in by the U.S. I mean, he had been a part of this you know, provisional government that was established in Chongqing, in China during during World War II and be, before World War II, he was part of this provisional government. But Sigmund Rhee had lived in the U.S. You know, most of the time he had never really lived much in Korea after he left in the, the early on. And you know, he 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 was always criticizing you know American policy, and be, be, was a real thorn. But he was like you know, he was the guy they chose. And they had a lot of problems with him. And, and, you know, he, even before the Korean War began, he was always pushing, Sigmund Rhee was always pushing to cross the 38th parallel and invade North Korea and make, you know, unify Korea under, under Israel. That's what he wanted. So we, when, you know, the, the, another key incident that happened, of course, was the Korean War itself. And like, you know, as I said, there was this counterinsurgency going on in Southern Korea led by the U.S., which had a military government in South Korea. And then, you know, pretty much the left was defeated by 1949 or so. And meanwhile, there had been all these, you know, the U.N. UN had come in with the, at the request of the U.S., and they were trying to set up you know, elections, whether Korea would be divided or not. And that was, you know, part of the issue in Korea, because a lot of people did not want it to be divided. But once the left was crushed, uh, 1949-1950, the leaders of North Korea at the time, led by Kim Il Sung, and he was that was there was actually part of a coalition of different communist groups in North Korea. He wasn't the sole leader by that time. I mean, they made a decision in 1950 to invade and liberate, try to liberate the entire peninsula. And they, you know, they, they, they crossed the 38th parallel in June 1950. When that happened, and, the, you know, a few days later, after the North Korean uh, crossed the line into South Korea and the fighting began, Truman intervened in Korea in a major way. And up to the Korean War, the Japanese economy was in the doldrums and, you know, it was, it was in a recession, and almost a depression. The Korean War basically saved the Japanese economy. How, uh, how, how, wait, wait, how did the Korean War save the Japanese economy? It's called the Korean War boom. That's what it's known as in Japan. Uh-huh. And, you know, and by 1950, be, be, 
partly because of, you know, the, the reforms under MacArthur, you know, unions really had a lot of power in Japan and they were especially strong within the, in the public sector and public employees. And so, you know, one of the reverses of the occupation was in, you know, 1948, 1949, the U the U S uh, uh, you know, instructed the Japanese government to, you know, start firing us to, to, to start break these public employee unions by firing tens of thousands of public sector workers. In Japan. Mm -hmm. There was this huge crackdown on organized labor, as well as especially in the public sector. And, and, and so the U.S. brought in this banker from Detroit named Joseph Dodge to basically impose sort of IMF, you know, what the IMF would impose on third world countries later, later on, they imposed on Japan, you know, the strict anti-inflation, mm -hmm. fire public employee workers, cut government spending, and so on. And by 1950, the Japanese economy was really sputtering. I mean, there was nothing, nothing much happening. And uh, the war you know, all of a sudden there was millions of dollars of U.S. purchases of military equipment. You know, that's ah. this, is, this is how Nissan got its start as a car, car exporter was, was, you know, making Jeeps for the U.S. and Korea and the steel industry. Every industry went, you know, began to provide, make weapons and other material for the U.S. in the war. And so ah. the Japanese economy, you know, while the, the, the European economy was got a boost from the Marshall Plan, which was U.S. government, you know, financial aid in Japan, it was the war spending that got Japan on its feet. Uh, unfortunately, it completely, you know, the war completely destroyed Korea. But, you know, you can still read, if you look up the State Department official history, of the Korean War, they, they still say, you know, Korea came along and saved us in Japan. That term is often used. Uh, without the Korean War, the Japan economy, you know, would, would still have sputtered on. Uh, but it gave it an enormous boost. I mean, the, the figures are incredible about the, the growth of the economy. And also, you know, the Korean War, that's basically how the military industrial complex was created because American, you know, military spending, you know, quadrupled in the first year or so of the war. And so there was this, you know, massive increase in, you know, U.S. military spending and, and you know, making weapons using, you know, Japanese parts and, and uh, uh, you know, Jap using Japanese steel also. And, and, you know, so there was this massive growth in the world economy as a result of the Korean War. And so by, you know, the end of the war, 1953, Japan had laid the foundation for its later export growth. And, you know, its electronics industry uh, was, was growing, its steel industry, automobiles, etc. That's what really gave the Japanese economy its first big, you know, boost of growth. And sort of, you know, later on, uh, when the U.S. war in Vietnam intensified, uh, South Korean exporters, you know, got a big boom from the Vietnam War. You know, war has really fueled the economic growth in, in East Asia. That was true until, uh, you know, that was true until uh, the end of the 1970s. Wow. Um, th that's, I, I did not connect that I I had no idea. That's how the Japanese economy grew. Um, so then I guess I want to talk to you a little bit about in the 1960s. It seems like there was going to be uh, I guess a massive revision of the way the U.S. and Japan were going to handle security. And I believe it was Shinzo Abe's grandfather who, while he was a war criminal, he was still elected prime minister, right? Well, they, they, the U.S. considered him a class A war criminal because, and he was, he, he had 
he had been in, in charge of the Japanese colony in Man Manchukuo, Manchuria. And, you know, actually his name was Kishinobusuke. He was, he was, you know, part of the, he was in the, uh, he was minister of commerce, the Tojo cabinet that declared war on the United States. But like as part of the, as part of the reverse course in the occupation, people like him were let out of prison. And as I said before, you know, they, then they started sending the communists back to prison. Ooh. And so like people like Kishi were brought out and they were promoted heavily. You know, I mean, first of all, the, you know, the CIA, which was organized in 1947, in the early 1950s, the CIA pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into this new party, the Liberal Democratic Party, that was led by people like Kishi and his brother Sato. And, and, have they and Kishi, ever lost a, an election in Japan? Have they what? Ever lost an election in Japan? Uh, only a couple of times. I mean, okay. the LDP has basically been in power since 1955, almost uninterrupted. Uh, there's been a couple of times, most recently in the 90s, uh, when a, a somewhat progressive party, you know, was elected to lead Japan. And actually, you know, when that happened, that progressive party and those progressive leaders wanted to change some of the Cold War relationship between U.S. and Japan and the U.S. government, both the you know Republican-led and Democratic-led government, the Obama administration really put a huge pressure on this progressive, brief progressive government, you know, to back off of their changes that they wanted. For example, Japan from the early days of the end of the war did not want American ships to you know bring in nuclear weapons. Did not want nuclear weapons in Japan. But the U.S. U.S. naval ships, you know, were bringing in nuclear weapons, you know, from the early fifties, secretly, and the, and the LDP government knew this, and it's so pretty you know, hard to secretly bring in that much radiation. But <laughs> well, it's a, no nuclear weapons on ships, you know, it's 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 hidden, right? Yeah, unless unless people know the weapons are there, nobody knows. So like. In the 90s, what they wanted to do was they wanted actually a part of what they wanted was to reduce the military, U.S. military presence in Okinawa. And the U.S. really pushed against that. And uh, but they also wanted to bring to light and make public some of the secret agreements that the LDP had signed with Japan, with the United States. And, you know, the U.S. put pressure and, you know, that government eventually fell and that the LDP and Abe came back in. So, but in, in going back to what you asked about the, the you know, the, the 1960s, uh, so in, you know, in 1950, when the, the occupation of Japan ended in 1952, mm -hmm. in, the middle of the, in the middle of the Korean War, when John Foster Dulles was sent by Truman uh, to negotiate a peace treaty with Japan. And... Mm -hmm. You know, this treaty was only signed by the U.S. and Japan. It did not include the USSR. It did not include Nationalist China. It did not include England, all of which were part of the Allied forces against Japan during the war. It was a treaty just between the U.S. and Japan, and it kept, as part of that treaty, uh, the U.S. got the right to keep U.S. military forces in Japan indefinitely. And so that treaty was signed in, in 1952. Then, then this security agreement, they renewed it in 1960. 1960, uh, when it was renewed in Japan, there was massive, massive opposition to it. And, I mean, huge, enormous demonstrations that got so intense that President Eisenhower was going to visit Japan in 1960 and, and, and cap off, you know, the, the signing of this security treaty, you know, by visiting Japan, but the Japanese government under Kishi could not guarantee Eisenhower security. So Eisenhower mm -hmm. didn't, didn't come to Japan at all. 
uh, because the demonstrations were so large, but they still managed to push this security treaty through in 1960. And then it was renewed again in 1969 and 70, where also that was sort of the last, you know, big spurt of leftist activism against the U.S.-Japan security relationship in Japan in 1970. Those those were enormous demonstrations, but the treaty still went through. And ever since then, uh, so, you know, part of the treaty, part of it was Japan was allowed to build its self-defense forces. Article 9 of the Constitution had banned Japan from forming another military, another army. But as part of the agreement, U.S. agreement with Japan, they... And the U.S. pushed this, you know, to build a self-defense force. And um, that became the kernel of the, you know, the Japanese military as it is today. The U.S. has been pushing this very close military to Japan pretty much the whole period, you know, since 19, since the LDP took control in 1955. And I guess when Shinzo Abe came into power, like he wanted to do... What is it that he, exactly he wanted to do with Article Nine? I'm I, that part. I, I he wanted to do. You know, they wanted to do away with it all altogether. Oh, and, he wants to get rid of it. Right, he wants to get rid of it. And and then, and now since the election a few days ago, the LDP government under Kishida is saying, you know, they have the votes now to get rid of. It. How many do they need? Well, they need they need a two thirds vote in the uh, both houses of their diet. The upper uh-huh. house and lower house, and, and after they have that, it has to go to a public uh, a public vote, and uh-huh. and it's uh, you know to me it's I don't I'm not sure how it'll happen. I think there's a lot of opposition in Japan to to ending Article Nine, to terminating Article Nine, and it'll, it remains to be seen. One of the articles I've been posting is an article I did. Uh, in the Nation magazine in, in 2015, which was when the most uh, significant change to the Article 9 was made. Uh, they passed a law under Abe around that time. It basically uh, allows you know, Japanese ships and, and Japanese uh, soldiers to uh, participate in, in some form in overseas uh, you know, conflict. And so that was a big change then, but the, the peace constitution still prevents a full standing army in Japan, and that's what they wanted. That was Abe's dream was to dismantle that and make Japan a so-called normal nation. And when that happened in 2015, there was the you know there was the biggest demonstrations in Japan since the 1960s. A lot of people would like to keep the peace constitution. So I, I, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to do it, but this has been the dream, not only of the LDP of Japan, but it's been the dream of American militarists since the 1960s. And, uh, you know, particularly the militarists grouped in the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, this big military think tank in Washington. They're, you know, leading figures such as Richard Armitage, who used to be uh, in the Pentagon and the State Department. He was the Deputy Secretary of State under George W. Bush. Uh, he's been, he, he was kind of instrumental in pushing Japan towards rearmament and towards uh, rejecting Article 9. So this is a, pro- a joint project of the U.S. military-industrial complex, and the right wing in Japan. We have a special treat for our subscribers for the rest of the summer. A membership in the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification. If we get enough new subscribers, we'll be doing a mass wedding in September. So, run. Don't walk on over to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch with Late Nights with Lennon. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form, and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done. 
uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but it, it just kind of uh, there's a theory popping up um, that makes a lot of sense. Are you at all familiar with the Unification Church in Korea? I am, but I'm not. A, I'm not any kind of expert on it. I mean, you know, these ties go way back, and um, you know, so I'm not the right person to give you a lot of history on the Unification Church, uh, but. You know they've been they've been a force in Korea and Japan for a long, long, long time. Uh, okay. Because- but like you know the the, the the key relationship in terms of the, the, the unification church is the relationship between the LDP, the right wing in Japan, and the right wing in South Korea. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 so you know that there was you know since ever since Korea was divided. And the U.S. had control in Southern Korea. The U.S. really wanted to push uh, South Korea back into an alliance with Japan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which had colonized it for, you know, Long 35 time. cruel years. Right. And so there's an obviously, you know, in Korea, a lot of opposition to having any kind of alliance with Japan for a long time. But in 1965, after four years after a military coup in South Korea brought to power General Park Chung-hee, who had, like many of the Korean military leaders of South Korea, uh, he had been trained and served in the Japanese Imperial Army during World War II. Uh, he you know, declared martial law, and uh, he was able to, with you, after lots of U.S. pressure, signed a normalization treaty with Japan this is 65, which opened up, you know, uh, which brought part of that treaty was, you know, Japanese war reparations was in the form of Japanese capital investment and loans to build up Korean industry. Mm. And that was really the takeoff point for the, the growth of South Korea's export economy was in after that normalization treaty was signed. But like that normalization treaty was also very unpopular in Japan too. And, but there, you know, the, the LDP had all these ties with the South Korean, you know, Park Chung-hee and the right wing in, in, in South Korea. And so, you know, they both, you know, put pressures on their, in, in, in their, in, I mean, there was massive opposition to this treaty in Japan as well, but it was for, it was pushed through and uh, you know, we can see what happened in Japan capital, Japanese capital expanded into South Korea. Uh, and, you know, by the, by the 70s, South Korea was becoming a big uh, export power in the U.S. market and then, and then the world market. But what Japan did was they began by shifting their labor-intensive industries uh, and operations to South Korea. Ah. And then they would go into the sort of high-tech end, right? And they, kind of like exactly like what the U.S. did. Exactly. But, but, the, the, I mean, you know, but, of course, in Japan, you know, the state plays, a, and in South Korea, too, the state played a much bigger role in their economic development by, you know, through loans and all kinds of, you know, policies that where the state would recognize certain export sectors and, and give loans to those companies that got into those export sectors. It was very much a kind of guided capitalism, mm-hmm. state-led capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, which is true in both Japan and, and, and South Korea. And, you know, granted, it created enormous growth in, in both countries, but particularly in Korea, you know, the, 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 economic growth was 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 in part made possible by you know keeping labor cheap and unorganized right ah. uh, you know so you know when i started going to korea as an adult as a reporter in 1981 i wrote a lot about you know the labor movement there because it was under such you know pressure and stress and repression uh, mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, that finally when South Korea, South Korean people, you know, rose up in the 80s and 1987 forced the military regime out, basically, and got, you know, a, 
uh, open elections, democratic elections for the first time. Labor also stood up. And so in the late 80s, you had this enormous, you know, expansion of, of industrial unions in South Korea. And in fact, the South Korean labor movement became one of the most powerful labor movements in the world. But during that period of growth, uh, you know, the workers paid the price. So many, you know, industrial accidents were, you know, we were a huge factor and, you know, long, long hours. South Korea still has some of the longest work hours in the world. And, you know, but, but, you know, this, you know, it's, it, they used to call it the economic miracle, right? That uh-huh. miracle was built on the backs of workers and, you know, the communities around the big industries that were, you know, polluted and there was no controls on, you know, chemical pollution and uh, air pollution and so on. And there, there was no democracy to allow democratic system where people could like, you know, push back against the big polluters. You know, that was that was the factor in how South Korea grew. But, but you know, Japan, they did have powerful unions. But during the Cold War, their most militant unions were crushed mm-hmm. uh, as part of, you know, as part, you know, during the Korean War, after the Korean War. Like, for example, in 1953, there was a long strike at Nissan by, you know, Japanese auto workers, uh-huh. led by a very militant union. And that union was branded a communist union, red-baited, and it was, they broke the strike. Uh-huh. And they brought in a new union that was, you know, very amenable to management. And I think the last big coal strike in Japan was in 1960 where they crushed the coal miners, the, the combination, you know, com- the Japanese LDP and its business partners helped crush coal miners. Uh, but, but, you know, those workers struggles had enormous support within, you know, Japan by ordinary people. And, um, you know, when I lived there, when I lived in Japan in the late sixties, people were also really aroused at, you know, the U S use of Japanese bases, particularly in Okinawa, during the mm-hmm. Vietnam War. And I, the biggest demonstrations I ever saw in my life uh, were in Tokyo, where just unbelievable, you know, numbers of people poured into the streets. And I wasn't just radical students. It was all kinds of, you know, citizens, ordinary people. Um, and, uh, you know, they city, Tokyo is by land. It's, it's, I think it's the largest city in the world. Uh, I mean, it's a huge, huge city, whatever. I remember 67, 68 demonstrators shutting the entire city down by taking over the railroad tracks uh, and, you know, taking over central stations and then just going on the tracks and just shutting down one station after another and just bringing the whole city to a halt. And they also had on their side, um, you know, railroad conductors, uh, railroad engineers were in a leftist union for quite some time in Japan, too. So the, the, the engineers would, would walk off and, and the whole system was, was shut down. But, you know, that period is long gone. Uh, and Japan has become overall, you know, very, very conservative. And they keep electing, you know, LDP year after year. But, you know, there's still some opposition in, in, the, in the National Assembly and the diet there. But it's not a very strong opposition. Uh, you know, one of the largest opposition parties, you know, is the, is the legal, you know, Communist Party of Japan. They, uh, they've always had seats in the Japanese diet you mm-hmm. know, throughout its history. So there is this segment of Japanese who are very, you know, pro-peace, you know, pro-worker and, and who, you know, who want an independent and sovereign Japan that's not controlled by the United States. It's, it's, it's actually pretty incredible when you look at the, what the U.S. military, the power the U.S. military has in Japan. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been articles in the Japanese newspapers like the Asahi recently over the last couple of years about, the, about these American military helicopters that fly all over, you know, Tokyo, America, without, you know, they, American military helicopters can fly directly over downtown Tokyo. No Japanese planes are allowed to fly over downtown Tokyo. Really. Wow. 
And, and so they have like control of Japanese skies. Mm-hmm. And, and when you consider that, how can you possibly say when another country has control of your skies, how can you say that country has any sovereign sovereignty? It doesn't. And it's, this is part of the sort of the hidden side of American military in Japan, which Americans just know very little about, unless you're in Okinawa and you follow what's going on in Okinawa. I heard about the rapes in Okinawa, but those are, I guess, that part is bad enough for me to completely understand why people in Okinawa want the base out. Right. There's been lots of rapes and violence by American soldiers. But that's that's true at all American bases when they're there for years and years and years. And you felt this, you know, this culture of impunity. And also, you know, there's there's the status of forces agreements between the two governments, you know, that, that, that really gives so much rights to the American soldiers. I mean, it took in, in South Korea in, ninth, in the early 1990s, it took a brutal murder of a prostitute on the outskirts of a U.S. base in South Korea. It took this brutal murder by an American soldier for an American soldier to be finally tried in the Korean court. Oh, wow. Until then, American soldiers who were, you know, charged with crimes, they would be tried by a U.S. military tribunal, often even if they were found guilty, where they were just sent back to the U.S. with no punishment. And when this rape and murder happened in Korea in 1992, Korean people had just had enough. And finally, this soldier was tried under Korean law and was convicted. But, you know, the, the, the military agreements the U.S. has with both Japan and South Korea are, are among, you know, it really shows you the very undemocratic nature of the relationship between the U.S. and its so-called allies. Mm-hmm. So the question I was going to ask is that do you believe Shinzo Abe's relationship with the Unification Church had anything to do with his murder? Well, apparently this the the killer's mother was a member of the church. Mm-hmm. And and he, he I've also I mean the reporting on this is really difficult to follow because it's very confusing, of, yes, the, for me. The, the, the Japanese media it, it took them days before they would even say the word unification church they just said you know he he belonged he was angry at some religious group you know the japanese press is very tame mm-hmm. and and so it, it, i think actually the first newspaper to really bring out the link was the washington post that, that oh okay he was a member of the unification church but there's something really strange going on here i mean he was I read something this this morning that the killer was mad about Kishi, you know, uh, Abe's grandfather, who apparently was close to the Unification Church as well. Uh, and and exactly why you know he would take aim at Abe is, is it's still not explained. But you know these these are things that are often you know these relationships are you know below the surface. It's always in the shadows in Japan and Korea, uh, except for these, you know, huge unification churches known for these, you know, mass weddings they have, right, where they marry like Mm 10,000 people at a time. But it's, it's it's a very murky part of Japan, and it's unclear to me, you know, it's still unclear what, you know, the reasons for this were. Um, but it sure made, you know, Abe into a martyr. And, it, it, um, the and, LD- and you think that helped his party electorally? Oh, definitely. They, 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 won a ma- they won a majority. And they're, you know, the leader of the pan-liberal Democratic Party is now talking about, you know, they're going to they're gonna be able to undo Article 9 of the Constitution and move forward on Abe's vision. And, uh, you know, the, these are people... You know, the, the leaders of Japan under the LDP, the current leaders, they're, they're, they want, you know, they're, they, they want to restore the, the old Japanese empire in Asia, except they under U.S., you know, under U.S. tutelage, under U.S. control. 
they are very proud of what Japan did in Asia, in China, and Korea, and the Philippines, and Southeast Asia during, you know, in the colonial period in World War II. They don't think the, the, the mistake they believe their forefathers made was in attacking the United States, not in, you know, uh, enslaving and, and invading, you know, China and, and Korea and other countries. Uh, and, the, and, and so they want to restore this kind of Japanese, you know, nation to its, you know, to its world. It almost time. sounds like make Japan great again. Make Japan great again. That's right. I mean, I mean, it's kind of an early version of what, what Trump was doing. Uh, you know, it's what, what happens when an empire collapses. But, you know, the important thing is, like, you know, the Japanese empire was defeated. But as I said, like in this reverse course, the people who had led that empire were brought back. And so th those people ran Japan for quite some time and from the 60s on to the 70s. Uh, so it's this continuity that they have with their with with the past. And I think. To me, one of the greatest mistakes uh, that the U.S. made in the occupation was in keeping the emperor and not trying the emperor as a war criminal because he had had everything to do with the war. He, mm. he'd, approved, he'd approved the invasion of China. He'd approved all the moves that they did. And, um, you know, there's, there was a huge amount of debate about whether they should keep the emperor or not. But, but uh, I think, you know, that was that was a that was a critical mistake because it allowed you know the sort of you know forces to sort of you know use the emperor as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, continue to use it as a symbol of you know a powerful Japan. Uh, I mean that makes a lot of sense. And so now I kind of see what's going on in that with the bigger China. Suddenly, I can see that these conservative forces in Japan and in the U.S. would kind of want to connect together because China is, I mean, there's no ends of, or buts about it, is going to get bigger and bigger. Right. Well, Abe has been, you know, he was leading, the leading person in terms of like, the leading politician in Japan in terms of like confronting China. But what's ironic about it is that when Abe's uncle, grand uncle, mm -hmm. uh, Isaku Sato, Sato Isaku. He was the prime minister in 72 when Nixon visited and opened up to Mao's China, right? Uh -huh. Well, you know, of course, Japanese business all through the 60s and, you know, early 70s, they desperately wanted to get into China. Uh -huh. And China, of course, wanted them in, uh -huh. uh, you know, wanted Japanese investment. But Japan, Japan could not do that as long as there was this, you know, the U.S. did not recognize China. So when mm -hmm. Nixon, Nixon made this enormous policy change and, you know, announced that he was going to visit China and meet with Mao and John Lai, they gave the Japanese government like a 10-minute warning of, wow. this, of this enormous change in policy, right? It was the first of what became known as the Nixon shock in, in Japan, Nixon shocks. One was, you know, devaluate the yen. Uh -huh. They changed the dollar-yen ratio to make Japanese exports uh, much more expensive in the U.S. as a way to curb their exports. Um. But, you know, when, when Nixon announced this uh, visit, uh, he was going to China, uh, the story is that Sato, the prime minister, broke down and cried because <laughs> he'd been, you know, he'd been completely left out of this, this enormous change in policy. And, of course, after that, Japan went, you know, Japan followed and did the same thing. And, you know, there's, there's lots of investment in Japan and, and, and in China from Japan. And, and, you know, South Korea and, and China also have very close uh, economic ties. I think their ties are actually closer than Japan's by now. But uh, now that Japan has become, I mean, now that China's, you know, built up its military and it's much more of a military force in in that part of the world in east asia southeast asia now you know japan wants the ldp is leading you know using that as a way to argue for you know japan needs to have a full-scale military and get rid of article nine uh, but the, you know it's certainly part of 
current U.S. anti-China ship. Japan is, is part of that. But, you know, South Korea, maybe not so much, even under a right wing leader. You know, I think South Korea does not necessarily want to antagonize China in that same sense. So it's not clear how that's going to work. But certainly under this South Korean leader, Yoon, uh, the military relationships between U.S., Japan, South Korea are going to get stronger and stronger. Wow, that's a lot to um, lot to absorb, absorb, I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, are you still working on your book? Uh, you were talking about it the last time. I'm working, um, on, I'm working on my book. I have a proposal out to my agent, and I hope to get a publisher sometime. And I, I probably will, but I'm still, and meanwhile, I'm just working on it, you know. Uh, well, unfortunately, there's not that much interest in, in Asia from a sort of left point of view. Uh, you know, it's, it's all, you know, if you see, you read in the op-ed pages of the newspapers now, it's all like Abe was this great guy. Uh, so I, I'm, hoping to get a, I'm hoping to get a publisher, but I'm still working on it. Well, good luck with that. And please come back when you do uh, finish uh, or when you do have the book published or when you finish writing or whatever. And as always, it's always a pleasure to have you. So thank you for coming because this like clears up so much, so many questions that I've had and a lot of listeners have had about Japan since it's been in the news recently. Good. I hope, I hope it's been helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have an excellent day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.